Hello and welcome to Outrageous Love which is passing the baton number 42 and the date is the 30th of October 2010. Love has a hem to her garment that trails in the very dust. It can reach the stains of the streets and lanes and because it can, it must. That's a little bit of poetry from someone who is unknown. So it's time for the church to grow up and into everything that Jesus won for us on the cross. Our innate ability to gaze at everything through distortion has created an illusion in the church that we can no longer sustain. Reality is breaking through. We must become that which Jesus died for. It's time to see the world through the lens of Jesus as God sees us in order that the world may see a glorious bride of Christ emerge, one who knows she is the beloved of God, one who knows him and loves him with the same love that he loves her. Pain is part of the process that will eventually bring us to this reality. The agape paradigm, which I will be outlining, challenges us to learn to love when reality breaks in upon us in life, marriage, health, church, life. There is a reality we discover when these things happen that has a way of shattering our illusions. To be disillusioned simply means you had an illusion in the first place. To love the group of people I am most close to when I see them for what they really, really are and love them as Christ loves them, speaking only to their potential, not their actual, is the maturity of love of which I speak. Nothing may change with them. I've just seen things without my rose-tinted spectacles. I've stopped my expectation of them. I've stopped being disappointed when they let me down. I've stopped making excuses for them and I have forgiven them. I've been shaken out of reality and reality into the kingdom reality to the point where I reevaluate everything and begin to see situations and people the way he sees them through the lens of love. Death is at work in me that life might be at work in you. 2 Corinthians 4.12 Thus death is actively at work in us but it is in order that our life may be actively at work in you. There is a death line that God wants to draw in each one of our lives in order that we may live in newness of life in Christ. That line has already been drawn. It was drawn in your life the moment you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's just that many of us are not walking the other side of it. We're still in a place of darkness rather than light. We're at a crossroads in Christianity. Either we are going to do it God's way or we are going to continue to try to do it our way. We get to choose. As Christians, we have many beautiful theories. God will heal everyone. Going to church will save you. God will save everyone. After all, we're all God's children. 
Paying your tithe guarantees health and wealth. Our church is the answer. No one else has the truth. Enough fasting, Bible reading and prayer will change God's mind. We can agree in prayer and God must do it. But he doesn't. A counsellor says the answer is to read more of the Bible and quite often, beloved, it's counterproductive because the Bible isn't magic. It's a love letter. And the other one, if you pray hard enough and long enough, God must answer. Or, if you build it, he will come. Not necessarily. He dwells where mercy and truth kiss each other where brethren dwell together in unity. You can't fake it. Whilst there is division, partiality and exclusivity, God simply cannot dwell. He may visit, but he can't live there. And those that I've just spoken of are some of the myths that have become so well known they're almost a doctrine. We've settled for the status quo. These adaptations and accommodations have been used to create a false reality and manufacture some kind of an appearance. They're often used too to exercise control over the people. We welcome you, but if you don't think the same way as we do, here's the right boot of fellowship. God is about to break all our fancy ideas and give us a dose of what Bob Mumford calls consummate reality. It is perfectly possible to conform or twist the Word of God to our desires. That is, it is possible to make it say what we want it to say in any given situation. I can almost see you smiling. Something like, God has told me it's alright to marry an unbeliever, I might convert him. God has told me I can commit adultery and it won't affect the anointing. Extreme examples may be, but it is conforming the truth to what we desire, and you get the drift. It's also trading. Trading our inheritance for a mess of pottage, but we'll look at that next time. What God wants is to conform us to his word. It is this process of disillusionment in this that you'll discover things about yourself that you would rather not have to face. But if you really mean business with God at this time, you'll bite the bullet, allow him to show you where you're not quite conformed to the image of his son and cooperate with the Holy Spirit as he seeks to take you on an accelerated path to maturity. You will allow the circumstances that God allows in your life to dislodge all that is man-made and replace it with that which is uncreated and eternal, with himself. This process will continue until we're conformed into his image and arrive at his intention for us rather than one of our own making. This is the coming of the kingdom in our lives. Someone has said it doesn't matter how far you travel in the wrong direction, you'll never reach your destination. So we are required to die to the appearance of reality in order to embrace the joy of reality itself. Paul said, I am determined to know nothing among you but Christ and him crucified. He saw 
all of the hypocrisy and deception of the Greek world and the unbelief of Judaism. And he knew that Christ and he alone was the reality. Knowing him was the only safe course to pursue. John 17.3 in the Amplified And this is eternal life. It means to know, to perceive, recognise, become acquainted with and understand you, the only true and real God, and likewise to know him, Jesus, as the Christ, the Anointed One, the Messiah, whom you have sent. Having said that, some things are unchanging. God loves you in the same way that he loves Jesus. And we love because he first loved us. He will not love us any the less, whatever we choose. And he already knows which way we will go. This message and probably those which will follow it are about maturing in Christ, coming out of babyhood and taking responsibility for ourselves, controlling ourselves, no one else can do it. They're given from a heart, beloved, which seeks the very best for you. I want you to succeed. I want you to come into abundance. My desire is to raise up mature disciples who will become sons in the truest sense of the word and will fulfill their destiny in Christ by showing forth his nature. To do that, some unpalatable facts may have to be faced for all of us. We're not what we think we are, but what we think we are. Decisions have to be made choices followed through. It simply won't do any longer to continue to make emotional choices and decisions without following through. The going will get tough and that is when we need to follow through. The word tells us that in the latter days iniquity or lawlessness will abound and our love for each other will grow cold. In my humble observation, our love is not even yet warm. Ephesians 4, 14-16 in the message says this, No prolonged infancies among us, please. We will not tolerate babes in the woods, small children who are an easy mark for imposters. God wants us to grow up, to know the whole truth and tell it in love, like Christ in everything. We take our lead from Christ, who is the source of everything we do. He keeps us in step with each other. His very breath and blood flow through us, nourishing us so that we will grow up healthy in God, robust in love. No matter how expensive the truth may seem at the time, we must embrace it, because it brings us a priceless freedom. Our goal is to be both alive and free, in order that we may set others free. It is impossible for one slave to set another free. Whilst we're still in bondage to ourselves, we're incapable of truly setting others free. We can only release them to the extent that we ourselves are released. Everything God asks of us will be given to us first. 
He never asks something of us unless he's already deposited it in us through Christ. We're in Christ. He's in us. He's in the Father. We're double wrapped. Any revelation we have is given to us by God in the first place. Any worship we give him was placed in us by him. Any love we offer him exists because he first loved us. Any glory given to God comes from him in the first place. Everything he asks of us he will give us. We simply return to God the very thing he has given us. We love because he first loved us. Brilliant. Amazing God. This teaching follows directly on last month's Growing Up in God where we looked at our personal transformation process and it sits between that and the next one in November which is The Risen Life where we'll, we'll explore what it's like living on the other side of the cross in resurrection life in our new DNA and how to get rid of a poverty mindset which incidentally is not primarily about money. So this month's teaching sits squarely in the middle and we'll explore in some depth the way in which our concept of love differs from the love of God. I'll start with what outrageous love is not, just as I started this series of three teachings with the negatives in our personality which God is transforming, because unless we can see uh, what love is not, we will never be able to truly recognize what it is. So let's start with looking at fallen love. We are born and reared with a twisted view of love handed down to us from the fall. When death entered the world it changed everything. God told Adam that in dying spiritually you'll die physically Adam and Genesis 2.17 in Young's literal translation says this and of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou dost not eat of it for in the day of thine eating of it dying thou dost die it's so sweet isn't it the way it comes out in the literal dying thou dost die dying physically you die spiritually and everything else besides we come into our Christian lives with our love unaffected and unchanged oh yes sometimes we could hug a tree for the first two weeks but we very quickly revert to our default position when the honeymoon period is over. Our discernment at the fall changed to judgment and our natural affection is seen most strongly in our self-love even though we may protest that we do not like ourselves very much. The love we're born with and imbibed with our mother's milk is a disease which must be rooted out of us or it will kill us and those around us. The church is full of it and as someone said recently it is like a cancer in your throat which is preventing us from swallowing and digesting what is in our mouths and as a result we are dying of malnutrition. Many of us are brought up with a distorted view of who we are, performing for approval from the day we entered the world. A baby burps and we say, oh, there's a clever boy or girl. We are 
receiving at that point a subliminal message that we've done something which has gained approval. We don't know what it was that we did, but whatever it was, it got approval and we desperately need that approval. We come into the world needing approval. So our search for approval and our performance in order to get it starts there. True spirituality begins when we become fully human. Relaxed in who we are in Christ, being transformed into his image day after day, fulfilling our God-given destiny and potential, free to make mistakes and fail sometimes, knowing we're the beloved, staying in that place of abiding. We see ourselves as God sees us, not as others see us, and we're walking in fullness, not measure. We are truly alive and free. God's outrageous love for us, when received, starts us on a journey of undoing into a place of security, acceptance and belonging in its truest sense. Jesus said in John 10.10, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Abundance is relative for every individual. Being alive is more than breathing. If you think about your life on a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being the most alive, where do you think you fall? A little bit of life? Some life? Much life? Or abundant life? Much will need to be left behind in order for us to step into our truest identity, which is in Christ. Let's take a moment then to look at the four loves. Someone has coined the phrase Eros love, which I'll appropriate and use throughout this time to express the difference between our natural affection, our warped and distorted idea of love, as contrasted with the agape love of God. In the Greek there are four different words for love, unlike us where we say I love my dog, I love cucumber, I love strawberries and I love God and expect people to understand there's a slight difference between cucumber and God. Koine, that's K-O-I-N-E, Greek or common Greek, is a very specific language which originated with Alexander the Great, who found that his troops responded in several different ways to the same command. He set about clarifying what he meant when he gave the order to fire or to advance instead of them shooting each other or their foot or somewhere else off in the distance. He gave a very clear order and they responded to that. As a result the word love in Greek has four distinctive meanings each of which are quite clear. They are storgos, S-T-O-R-G-O-S, phileo, P-H-I-L-E-O, Eros, E-R-O-S, and Agape, A-G-A-P-E. The first one, Storgos, is the love of parents for their children. It's a nurture love. It's a filling the need of love of parents towards their offspring. 
and it follows therefore that astorgos which is a the a prefix meaning something away from which Paul mentions in 2 Timothy 3 3 in the New American Standard is the reverse and he speaks of people in the last days and describes how they'll be unloving irreconcilable malicious gossips without self-control brutal haters of good not a nice character at all so astorgos means they are even without natural affection and these are the people that Paul warns Timothy to look out for they don't even have this natural fallen affection they are just inhuman the second love phileo is what we would call friendship love I have called you friends Jesus says and at the end of the Gospel of John he uses another word when he asks Peter three times do you love me agape me Peter if you do feed my sheep Jesus Jesus uses the word agape and poor old Peter replies wistfully you know that I phileo you Lord you know I think you're a great guy to be with but he hadn't reached the place of agape he was not yet ready to lay down his life for the sheep the next Greek expression of love eros has been so distorted that it was never used in the Bible at all to describe love of any kind because of its gross sexual overtones and we're all familiar with the statue of Cupid shooting his arrow of love into the heart of his intended uh, made um, famous by the statue in Piccadilly Circus but the name Cupid actually never became widely known by the British public and the original name Antiros came back under the shortened form of Eros so we know him as Eros not Cupid and Eros signifies the god of sensual love just right to describe the carnal neighbourhood of London into which Soho has developed and Wikipedia says this of Eros intimate love in Greek mythology Eros was the primordial god of sexual love and beauty he was also worshipped as a fertility deity his Roman counterpart was Cupid brackets desire and also known as Amor brackets love in some myths he was the son of the deities Aphrodite and Ares but according to Plato's symposium he was conceived by Poros brackets plenty and Penia brackets poverty at Aphrodite's birthday Eros and, and everything surrounding it is rooted in gross expressions of sexuality particularly in sexual desire which is the desire to possess acquire and control something or someone for your own personal grain, gain which we would term lust it's a strong physical desire to have sexual intercourse with someone usually without any associated feelings of love or affection it's a raw and very basic satisfaction of an appetite if ever there was an expression of man's desire to satisfy himself this would be the one everything in our culture is sexualized to create and arouse appetites which are illicit and inflamed desires which are also illegal from cars to underwear both men's and women's clothing and accoutrements that's their accessories their trappings their bits and pieces 
are advertised through the lens of sexuality. And Psalm 119 verse 9 asks a very good question. How can a young man keep his way pure? How can he, or a young woman in these days, keep their ways pure? It's a very good question. Then we move on to another word, pornea. P-O-R-N-E-I-A. It's another Greek word which means fornication or sexual activity outside the sanctity of marriage. Literally, sexual intercourse between a man and a woman who are not married or any form of sexual behaviour considered to be immoral. And that is where we get our word pornography. That, beloved, is the fallen, natural affection of mankind, the love which is our inheritance from Adam. Inherently self-seeking, it always desires to possess the object of its affection, to satisfy something deep within itself and for its own pleasure or delight. If you look objectively at this form of love and take it to the ultimate conclusion, you'll see that everything rooted in Eros will lead you right back to Satan and the Garden of Eden and man's temptation to be his own God and master of his own destiny by making his own choices and using his own wisdom. If you look objectively at the Father's love, agape, which is self-giving, the complete opposite, it will lead you right back to the arms of the Father of Lights. So our last Greek word is agape, which is the self-giving love of God. God so loved the world, he gave. The significant factor in agape is that it gives, and it gives without any thought of receiving anything in return. It loves whether you return that love or not. And this love has value attached to it. When the early Christians began to speak of this love, there was no word for it because agape includes this idea of valuing, a high regard for the object that is loved, which it sees as precious. In the culture of the time, love was, as we say, cheap. It was bought and sold as a commodity, much as it is today. So when the Christians began to speak of another kind of love, a kind that poured itself out even for the most deeply fallen and lost, they had to invent a word for it because they didn't have one. Agape covers, carries with it the idea that even those who have given themselves over to the worship of the vilest of gods are not outside the outpouring of agape which is directed towards them. Child abusers, satanists, perverts and their vile practices are not outside the love and compassion of God. Agape takes a totally different viewpoint on life and humanity. It sees none as being beyond the reach of the love of God because of the work of Jesus on the cross. His blood is enough. The vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. That is the most amazing good news. If Hitler 
and all he was responsible for, the Holocaust and all those things, believed. The moment he believed, he was forgiven. That is astonishing, incredulous, amazing, wonderful, marvellous, good news. But our natural love is biased, it's prejudiced, it's partial, it is narrow-minded and one-sided. We would have great difficulty thinking that if a man who, who committed those atrocities only had to believe and be forgiven, we would struggle with that, particularly if any of our dear ones had been involved in it. We love people if we approve them. If we don't approve them, we withhold our love and they know it because it is a deliberate action. My dear mum withheld her love from me as a child when I misbehaved. She wouldn't speak to me for days. So I came into Christianity with a huge rejection problem and a performance mindset. Get it right and God will love you. Get it wrong he will withdraw from you and for me that equaled love must be worked for. I must get it right which would be fine if I knew what it was if you get my drift. Over the course of the last 25 years or so he's revealed himself to me as the God of unconditional love and acceptance regardless of my performance and certainly not because I get it right. He has consistently bathed me with, him, with himself, washing away all my preconceived ideas about love and what it means to be the beloved. He is in the process of teaching me to learn how to respond to his love. And it's a science. Learning how to be loved. And this process is ongoing. He's much more to show me yet, as is evidenced by the fact that he told me recently that my heart is three sizes too small. So I'm looking forward to the enlargement. You can see, beloved, that this teaching is going to cause you pain as well as joy, as you see that what you've accepted as normal life and normal love is not how God's view of normal life and normal love is. His love is outrageous, it is shocking, it's upsetting in its ability to forgive and release because of the cross of Jesus. The cross of Jesus spells freedom to love without strings. Our natural mind may well be offended by what this study reveals of our human nature. Even our love for our nearest and dearest is shot through with sin. The love we grew up with was faulty, so our love is faulty, and the pictures and the ideas, the concepts and the images of the way we grew to understand what love is are shot through with sin, use, manipulation, exploitation, possession, control, demand, criticism, judgment, performance, be like this and I'll love you. How many husbands withhold love because their wives are put on weight and they desire a wife with a model-like figure? So they withdraw their affection. Or they look elsewhere. 
what they see is not pleasing in their in their eyes they want the person to be what they want in order that they will love it needs to think about that one many parents are working out their lives through their children many parents control and manipulate their children for their own ends in the name of love keeping them close for their own security dominating them suffocating them and preventing them from individuating they're held fast by what the parents call love but it's actually domination manipulation and control under another name and I'm talking here about Christians not unbelievers nothing has happened in the love department since they were born again Romans 12.2 in the Amplified says this do not be conformed to this world this age fashioned after and adapted to its external superficial customs but be transformed changed by the entire renewal of your mind by its new ideas and its new attitude so that you may prove for yourselves what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God even the thing which is good and acceptable and perfect in his sight for you how we need the mind of Christ and how we need to see others as God sees them beloved a renewed mind is not an option it's a necessity you can see nothing through your old mind we must be transformed by an entire renewal of our mind because we can't see anything in the spirit through our old thinking and mindsets it's impossible for us to prove the good and acceptable and perfect will of God without a renewed mind so there are things we will have to unlearn and teachings we will have to put aside and mindsets that will have to be broken if we're to fully receive and embrace and then manifest that is show forth the agape of God to those around us God is inclusive he's never exclusive he loves the sinner he does not love the sin he's dealt with that at the cost of his beloved son black white red yellow and brown and all shades and beliefs in between are a target for his agape love an understanding of his of his all-encompassing loving kindness and mercy will break mindsets and change perspectives it'll doubtless show up your Jonah together with your moat and beam syndrome if you're anything like me he just doesn't see things the way we do so when we're born again we get to choose which love we will live our lives in before we were born again from above we had no such choice we could only live out our lives in Eros we can now choose to live our lives in the love of choice which is not based on fulfilling our desires but goes outwards to seek the best for the other it is as simple or as difficult as that we have a choice we choose to love and that love is never negotiable no matter what anyone does or says to us we choose to love them and to seek their highest good if churches were to operate in this kind of love we would never see splits or divisions 
because everything would be subject to the royal law of love. But while the self-seeking, I want, I feel, I need, fill me, satisfy me, be with me, be for me, what about me, what would happen to me, I will feel so, fill it in your own blank, if anything happens to you, I am at the centre. While all that is operating, we are not being the bride of Christ that he desires us to be. Just think how it would look if we suddenly started to say, how can I honour you? How can I help you? How can I bless you? How can I love you? What can I be for you? How can I provide the best for you? Self-giving agape. One is straight from the heart of the God who loves us to distraction. Distraction, sorry. The other is from the pit. One is straight, the other has a hook. And the hook asks the question, what is in this for me? What can I hook into myself from you? What can you fulfill for me? How can I get my own way? What can I gain? What can I get? What can I possess? What can I control? It's got a hook, has an agenda, always. Flattery, never, never, never listen to flattery. It's always seeking to get something out of you. And I'll slap your wrists if I find you flattering someone else. You're so good at that, Beryl, would you just... There it is, the hook. You're so good at it, I need this done, will you do it? Flattery seeks to get something out of you. Has an agenda. It's always seeking something for itself, always. No matter how pure Eros paints itself, it's seeking something. It flatters, it wheedles, it gets angry if it can't get it what it wants. It cajoles, it cries, it manipulates, it controls, it bullies to get what it wants. And the other thing is it's never satisfied. It's not a pretty sight, is our natural love. So let's just look for a moment at what we lost at the fall. In the garden, Adam and Eve sewed fig leaves together and covered themselves. Then they hid themselves from the presence because they were afraid. So they covered their own nakedness and hid for fear of God. That is our legacy. What you have at the root of this nation's problem or society's problems are the aprons, the fig leaves, the coverings we've made for ourselves and the masks that we wear to hide from the presence, ourselves and each other. Why Am I Afraid to Tell You Who I Am was the title of a book written in 1975 about this very thing. The author is John Powell and it is still available. Why am I afraid to tell you who I am? Because I think you might not like me, that's why. So I hide. What we fear, beloved, above all things is exposure. We are desperately hiding because we are afraid of being discovered. This is why when you're in a meeting where there is the presence of God, there's a tendency to want to run away because we know he's going to rip those fig leaves off <laughs> because we know we stink underneath 
There will come a Gethsemane in your life if you seek to go on with God where he'll show you things about your inmost being you do not want to face and it's agonising stuff. He's ripping those fig leaves away. Sometimes it's all about seeing who you're blaming. In a marriage situation it becomes frighteningly obvious that the things you've always comforted yourself with as being someone else's fault are really your fault as he says, no darling, this one's yours. And in the long run it's not so much the sins of others against us that have made us what we are but our sinful reactions to their failure to meet our expectations. Parents lack love to their children, children become bitter towards their parents. Beloved, they cannot give what they do not have. Forgive them, they walk on broken legs as do we all. In the presence then there's not only healing but pain as we're exposed to the light of his loving scrutiny and we do not like what we see. When Jesus walked the earth he ministered to the whole man. He healed with wholeness the shalom, the peace of God. Peace in spirit, in soul and in body as he lovingly restored people to himself. As he did that the soul and the body came back into alignment and total healing was manifested. When we separated from the life source we went from light and life into darkness and death. When we're born again we come back into light and life but we bring something of the darkness and the death with us. The reason for this that parts of us are still connected to the wrong source. People, have you probably noticed, nearly always identify themselves by their sin. I'm a schizophrenic, I'm a homosexual, I'm an adulterer, I'm a child abuser. If we can't face it, we embrace it and it becomes who we are. It becomes our identity, not the sin that we engage in. In another way, a musician, for example, may become so wedded to his guitar that it becomes who he is. And while he's clinging to that guitar, he is separated in certain aspects from God. This guitar isn't you, son. You're finding your identity in your guitar strings, not in God. You're connected to the wrong source. We all hide in all ways behind all sorts of things. From God, from ourselves and others. And we need to be healed. When I speak of healing in this context, I'm talking about the closing of a wound, the healing of a rift, a cleft, a separation in our relationship with God on a spiritual level and on an emotional level between us and other people, but also within ourselves. We are separated within our own selves from ourselves. So if you can begin to think of, say, mental problems as being diseased tissue, affected by the fall, the rift, the separation from God, we were ripped away. Affected by selfishness and sin, it's like an infection that, that's got in there and turned the wound bad. So if you can see emotional problems like this too, it'll help you. And some of your physical problems will begin to disappear as your spiritual and emotional problems are healed. 
Arthritis, for instance, is rooted in deep emotional and psychological problems. Rheumatism and some cancers have got the same origin. But first it's necessary that we face ourselves and our problem and open up to God and admit that we need his healing touch. Mostly in the church we minister to the surface problem, what we can see, the physical, and we often see no change and we get quite disappointed, but this is because the root is emotional or psychological, so the problem is really somewhere else. But to discover this would mean exposure. We need to allow God to rip those fig leaves off, but we stop short. We hide and remain unhealed. We cannot face ourselves or anyone else. Beloved, we're living in the darkness, not in the light of his glorious presence. You know, the rats love that garbage. They really love that garbage. You turn the lights on and the rats will run. But we are still running. We're still hiding. We're still covering ourselves, just like Adam in the garden does no good to heal the body unless the heart is healed too. Remember, beloved, he knew you in the womb. His love is outrageous and it's scandalous in its ability to forgive and forget. His love makes war on shame. His love makes war on everything that is not Jesus because you are accepted in the beloved and freedom is part of your inheritance. He saw where people did not love and care for you and how that changed and warped your personality and affected the way you relate to yourself and those around you, how it formed a hard, impenetrable shell round your heart. He saw you become withdrawn. He saw you put up the defences. He heard you make those vows, I'll never let anyone that close again. He knew you withdrew to protect your heart, and he didn't condemn. He's given you a new heart. Now he says, let me love you, drop the defences, lay down all those carefully constructed barricades and bar barriers, let down the drawbridge and let me in. This is not a time to hide. Those things are of no use to you now. They have become bands that are holding you. They no longer protect you. They've become bondages which need to be broken. And the anointing breaks the yoke. This is where you'll experience both joy and pain. He doesn't want you to know his love as academic, intellectual and mind experience if it's possible to know him like that. He's after your heart, beloved. You have his fullest attention at all times. He's got a huge heart of affection towards you and it is not based on your performance. He completely understands all your struggles and he doesn't see anything wrong with you, only what is missing in Christ, only the part of you that doesn't look like Jesus. At the fall, man's drive changed too. The thing that he was seeking after changed. He lost his security, his identity and his sense of belonging which had made him a responder to God. In their place, he received a drive to obtain for himself position, possession and power. In other words, he mirrored not God any longer, but Satan, 
who himself wanted to be like God. Remember, his first fall came before the fall of man, and he makes five I will statements in Isaiah 14, 13 and 14. He says this, You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the Mount of Assembly, on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. Megalomaniac. The desire for position, possession and power is what we inherited at the fall. Ambition. To be something, do something, make a name for ourselves. You see it at the Tower of Babel. Let us make a name for ourselves. So let's just have a little trip into the New Testament and see how the disciples displayed this. Does that surprise you? As they interacted with the agape of Jesus, how they actually demonstrated their eros nature before they were filled with the promised Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And we see the desire for these three things, position, possession and power, in their behaviour in various portions of scripture. I'll start with Matthew 20, 20-28 in the message. It was about that time that the mother of the Zebedee brothers came with her two sons and knelt before Jesus with a request. What do you want? Jesus asked. She said, Give your word that these two sons of mine will be awarded the highest places of honour in your kingdom, one at your right hand and one at your left. Jesus responded, you have no idea what you're asking. And he said to James and John, are you capable of drinking the cup that I'm about to drink? They said, sure, why not? Jesus said, come to think of it, you are going to drink my cup. But as to awarding places of honour, that's not my business. My father is taking care of that. What a gracious answer. When the other ten heard about it, they lost their tempers, thoroughly disgusted with the two brothers. So Jesus got them together to settle things down. He said, You've observed how godless rulers throw their weight about, how quickly a little power goes to their heads. It's not going to be that way with you. Whoever wants to be great must become a servant. Whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. That's what the Son of Man has done. He came to serve, not be served, and then give his life in exchange for the many who are held hostage. So here we've got mum and her two boys. She wants the best for her boys, a position of power. So she tries to get Jesus to promise that they will have the place of highest honour. And as a result, there is uproar. It's a lovely little display of human nature in the raw there. And what about the desire for possession? Matthew 26, 8 and 9 again in the message. When Jesus was at Bethany, a guest of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him as he was eating dinner and anointed him with a bottle of very expensive perfume. When the disciples saw what was happening, they were furious. That's criminal! This could have been sold for a lot of money and handed out to the poor. All the disciples are indignant about the waste a display of religion. They didn't really care about the poor. 
it was a waste of money they were thinking about and in their view what she did was a complete waste and power Luke 9:46 in the Amplified but a controversy arose among them as to which of them might be the greatest surpassing others in excellence worth and authority in all of these dialogues and you can find many more the disciples are clearly demonstrating sibling rivalry they all want first place they all want position they all want to possess they want power fallen drive later in the new testament we see the complete reversal of all these self-seeking desires as the disciples now filled with the holy spirit display lives which are transformed into the very likeness of Jesus himself as they walk in the agape of God. The letters of Peter, John and James overflow with righteousness, peace and joy. They had allowed the transformation and reformation to take place. And then again in the New Testament as another example of our lower nature we've got the classic story of Ananias and Sapphira very familiar story. No one was asking anything of Ananias. He offered it. But he withheld some of, of the money for himself. He wanted the glory of being seen to be a free giver. But he also wanted to look after himself. So he hedged his bets. And he and his wife Sapphira lied to the Holy Spirit with the result that we see in Acts 5, 3 to 10 in the New American, New, sorry, New International Version. We see this. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You haven't lied to men but God. When Ananias heard this he fell down and died and great fear seized all who had heard what had happened. Then young men came forward, wrapped up his body and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that's the price. Peter said to her, how could you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out also. At that moment she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. God hadn't asked Ananias for his money. He'd volunteered it in order to look good, feel good and be right. That's yet another element of Eros. It seeks to look good, feel good and be right. Check it out. He was dishonest in what he did. He kept something back whilst wanting everyone to think what a great guy he was. He wanted to create an impression by committing the sin of omission. Ever done that? Not told all the truth, just a part of it to create a false impression. You're committing the sin 
of a mission. I mean, I've told this many times. My first pastor, my wife never makes me a cup of tea. And everybody says, oh, that's awful. Oh, whatever's she thinking about then, he says. I don't drink tea. Creating a false impression by only giving half of the truth. Are you guilty? Beloved, you cannot lie to the Holy Spirit and get away with it. Eros will always want to make itself out to be better than it really is. Or to gain sympathy for a cause. As God transforms you into his image, he and the enemy have got the same agenda, you know. They both want to kill you. Satan wants to kill, steal and destroy. God wants to kill off your flesh and as Graham Cook would say, he isn't apologising. In everything, beloved, love is the key. And it is the one thing that humankind struggles with most because the love of which we speak is not human love. It is divine. It is self-giving, not self-referential. The glimpses which the Gospels give us into the raw behaviour of the disciples before they received the Holy Spirit are priceless, aren't they? But oh, so human. Don't you identify with some of them? I do. Their cringe factor must have been mega as they reflected later in their lives on their own behaviour. Position, possession and power. The three things that Adam exchanged for security, identity and belonging at the fall. What a trade. He lost everything and gained nothing. He bought a lie. The legacy this has left us is the fight that we have to separate ourselves from natural love which is self-seeking and self-referential to divine love, the love of choice. This is the journey into the Father's heart which will begin for you when you become as intentional towards him as he is towards you and you make the choice to live a life characterised by love. If we are to understand the life of love we first have to see God as he really really is not how we think he is. God is a giver and one of the marks of our coming into his likeness is that we become givers and lovers too. Like father, like son.